Hello, I'm Michael Wimmer, and welcome to the Pros and Pros podcast, a podcast devoted to the exploration of great sports writing. In the last few years, since their rise from 1AA to 1A, Boise State has become nationally known as one of the best and most consistent college football programs in the country, culminating with their infamous and thrilling victory over Oklahoma in the 2007 Fiesta Bowl. However, that was a victory decades in the making, as the school did not grow from a junior college power to the team it is today overnight. In his new book, Boise State of Mind, Joel Gunderson tells the story of how the Boise State Broncos became such a successful program by going back to the team's origins and filling in the gaps in a way that should be both informative and enjoyable for all college football fans. Together, Joel and I had a good conversation covering the highlights of the program's history, how Boise State has continued to stand out, and what other schools could learn from their success. Without further ado, here's Joel Gunderson. Today I have with me Joel Gunderson, the author of Boise State of Mind, a new book about how a small school in Idaho became a college football power. Good to have you with me today, Joel. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. First off, what led you to want to write a book about the Boise State football team? So I started this uh, in August of 2016. Um, I was about seven or eight years into my freelance writing career and was kind of feeling like I was at a little bit of a stalemate and was really looking to, to just make something happen for myself. And the idea of writing a book had always been in the back of my mind, but I was never sure when the time would be right or what I would want to do. Um, so one day I just, I, I don't know, I had an epiphany or something and I just said, okay, the, the time is now, you got to do it. So um, started jotting down ideas that I thought would be a subject that would be something I could really sink my teeth into. Um, cause I, you know, I'd done a lot of research and read a lot of, uh, um, pieces by authors and where they talk about, you know, what it takes to really write a book. So I knew that I had to do something that, you know, I would, I would find passion in, um, that I could probably dedicate a good two years of my life to. And, and, and also a story that I felt needed to be told. And, and the first one that really came to my mind, um, after I, I'd covered college football for a long time and, and the Pac-12 and the West Coast was my area um, that I covered. And, and the Boise State story was the first one that popped in. I thought, you know, as much as we feel we know about this program, um, a lot of it was the same narrative of, you know, the Blue Field and, and the Fiesta Bowl and Chris Peterson. And, but I, I thought, you know, in order to achieve what they'd achieved, there had to have been a lot more to to the program and, and to what went into building it. So that was actually the first idea I jotted down and wrote down five or six others and then just started crossing the other ones off as they, they just didn't grab my attention. And um, when I started, I, I knew one person in the program, uh, a friend of mine, his dad was a, an offensive coordinator there for one season in the eighties. Uh, and that was the first person I talked to. And um, because of, of the way the school was set up and the program, it's such a, a small tight knit community that, that once I talked to him, you know, the floodgates opened and I was able to, to speak to uh, over 130 people in the short time frame I had to do it. And um, it just, it just took off. And I, I really found um, that there was a story there and that there was more, um, you know, it was groundwork of 70 years of winning uh, before they finally really took off and, and the nation took notice. And so it was kind of random how I got to it. But uh, once I did, I, I really fell in love with the project. Mm -hmm. and, and what was the most exciting part of the research and the writing process for you as you did all those interviews and, and started working on the book? I think for me, it was, it was uncovering this program, um, just how successful they had been. 
Um, I think when, when, you know, if you go back to their origins in the early 1940s, um, they've had, and it's been a couple months now, the information's start, a little foggy, but I, mean, I, I believe they have 10 losing seasons in the history of the program. Uh, four of those were in their early, early days as a junior college. Uh, and four of the other ones have been after a coaching change. Uh, and some of the coaching changes were, you know, were Houston Nutt, for example, who left just out of the blue after one year or uh, Pokey Allen who passed away of cancer. And so, you know, it hasn't always been smooth transitions and um, just the remarkable consistency that they have. I mean, this, this program wins seven, eight, nine games every single year. You know, it's, it's not a new trend. It didn't start with Dan Hawkins in the early two thousands. This, this really goes back to the fifties and um, you know, it, it's, it, and, and what I discovered is I, I discovered a community of Idaho and of Boise that, um, has a very high standard for their football program. Um, and it's never been taken to a level where their fans have been, um, now to say, they've never been unrealistic in what they are, but they also don't let, uh, you know, they, they hold the program to a high standard. They, they will not let it get to the point where it slips below greatness. And I think that was really the, me, the fun part of connecting, um, how, seeing how close all alumni are and all the players that, that, played in the 70s and 80s and 90s that I have gotten to know and be friends with and and just watching their interactions on social media and, and you know their families know each other and um, you know a, a lot of colleges and players that, that leave programs have an affinity for their their school um, but I feel like at Boise State it's just a little bit different and, and it's hard to pinpoint and, and really articulate what that difference is but you feel it when you're there. Mm-hmm. And and as you mentioned, the the story of their success goes back decades, and kind of kind of starts with Lyle Smith right after World War II. Uh, what what was he himself able to do to help transform that small school into a junior college power? I think when you look back on the the history of college football, Lyle Smith is a name that that doesn't get talked about outside of that region, um, but may have been one of the most impactful in in really the shaping of college football. So he 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 joined there in the early nineteen forties. Um, came in as an assistant coach, had been coaching at high schools around the area. He actually went to, to Idaho. Um, and, and if you want to talk about an understated rivalry for years, what, what that was, the Idaho-Boise State rivalry was tremendous. Um, he came in and, and basically after a year and a half took over the program. Uh, the previous coach got let go. And he went on a 20-year run of, of just incredible dominance, won his first 33 games, um, had to leave to go be in the Korean War. Um, the program kept right on going for the year and a half he was gone. He came back and just took off. I think he ended up winning about 85% of his games. By the time it was all said and done, they won the national championship in 1958. Um, then he decided that he was done coaching, and he wanted to slide into an athletic director's role, um, one that he held until 1981, and just really – you know, the program had only been around for seven years before he started, but they, they had gained no traction. They were barely a blip in the community, and he took it over. And within, you know, a matter of years, they had a, a new stadium. They moved into a 10,000-seat stadium, which, you know, for the decade it was, the era it was, the size of school they were, which was, was huge. Um, it was state-of-the-art at the time. Uh, he was just a visionary and he, he was tremendous at picking up coaches and, and transitioning from one regime to another, uh, truly a beloved figure. And he, he passed away a couple of years ago at the age of 101. 
Um, but up until, you know, up until his passing, he would still be in the gym at the, uh, at the university. He would go work out where the players worked out twice a week. I mean, just right up to the end. Um, he truly is, you know, it's, 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 sometimes it's hard to compare schools of size, but, you know, when you talk about um, Bear Bryant down in Alabama and what he means to that community, uh, you go to Boise and, and you talk about Lyle Smith and there's the same reverence there. And, and, and he means so much to that community. And, you know, it all started with him being a really incredible coach. Uh, and if he had coached, you know, nowadays when college football is as popular as it is, I mean, he was, he was the best of the best. You would not find anybody better. And uh, just, it, yeah, he truly revolutionized the program. And then his abilities as an AD were, were just as good. And, and you know, he was behind the scenes, but uh, his impact was incredible. Mm-hmm. And uh, throughout the, the history, the school has raised its stature uh, many times from from junior college to a four-year program to Division One AA and now to the FBS, how have they been able to make all those advances with success? That goes back to um, the mentality of, of the of the of the community. Um, you know, I've talked about this. So there's been a you know a few programs that have successfully transitioned. You know, you look at a, a place like Utah. Uh, TCU has gone up and, and done pretty well. Um, you know, Boise State, like I said, there was, you know, there's always going to be a transition point when you go from JUCO to Division II to Division one a to Division I. Um, their ability to seamlessly make that transition and, and not have much fallback is just – it goes back to, uh, you know, like I talked about Lyle Smith, his ability to hire the right coaches. I mean – you know, the guys that, that came through there, Jim Kreiner, Tony Knapp, you know, on and on downwards. I mean, and, and taking chances on guys like Dirk Cutter and Dan Hawkins and then taking on Chris Peterson. I mean, there's the infrastructure, not only of the school, but of the community and that, and that, um, that, that high regard that I talked about, they hold them to. You know, they've had a, they had a couple seasons where they won three or four games and it was turned around right away. And there's just um, – also, the ability, and I think this is something that's really important, the ability for, the, for everyone involved not to overlook what they are. And what I mean by that is they always knew that they were a little bit of a smaller school, a little bit of an underdog. They never tried to outreach themselves, and I think that's why they are still in the Mountain West. I mean, they've had opportunities to move up even further, but you, know, it's, you have to sometimes accept where you are, and there's nothing wrong with being the best of the best at perhaps a little bit lower level. Um, and they always took that on no matter which direction they were going and they avoided scandal. I mean, this is a program that has had very few red flags over the years. You know, they, they've had little incidences here and there. Uh, but for the most part, they've been able to avoid a really debilitating scandal that would be very hard for a school their size to overcome. And I, I think that's something that cannot be overlooked was their ability to just be steadfast, do things the right way consistently. And, you know, they're the real testament to sticking with the plan and, and seeing how it comes to fruition. Mm-hmm. And, and moving ahead a few decades, uh, Boise State won the 1AA National Championship in 1980, but then entered a period of mediocrity throughout the 80s and early 90s. Um, but under Pokey Allen, the team was able to get back on track. How, how were they able to do that under his leadership? Yeah, so it's you know it's funny. The '80s were were probably when you, when you look back through the record books was definitely the the lower point for the program, and they had a couple of hires that just you know just didn't quite work out. Uh, you know, Lyle Sentinich and and Skip Hall, who were you know great you know great coaches and great men. Um, they just there was a you know whether the factors are maybe a little bit of dip in talent or 
other programs were catching up to them. They're just, and again, you know, even in, in those times, they were still winning six, seven games. Um, but when you look at the overall, you know, factor of the program, that was actually a dip. Um, you know, the real turning point was in 1992 when they actually went to Portland State and got blown out by, by Pokey Allen and his Portland State squad. Um, and, and, and that's when, um, you know, Gene Blamier, they who was the athletic director, kind of took notice. And if him and, you know, there's a story, him and a few of the boosters were walking on the field after the game and, and they, they looked at Pokey and they kind of said to themselves like, okay, that's, that's where, that's what's missing. You know, Pokey was, you know, as enigmatic and, and inventive as a coach as you would find at the time and, and just a real character. And, and they were coming off a, a decade of more of a vanilla approach. Everything was a little bit buttoned down. Um, and Pokey was the total opposite of that. And, and he came in and in his first year in 1993 was, was an absolute disaster. They won three games. Um, but, but Pokey, you know, knew that, there, there had to be a quick turnaround. And he said after the season, he goes, if I have a season like this again, you don't even have to fire me. I'm gone. I'm not going to put, put the community through that again. And, you know, he went out and signed about 20 Juco players and, and had this huge instant impact. And, and it, you know, it was Pokey's vision and sense of urgency, I think, heading into the 1994 season that really turned it around because if he didn't have that and if they struggled through a few years of rebuild, you know, they might not be where they were. And, and, you know, unfortunately his, you know, his story's known about his passing after he got cancer, um, you know, but it led to a domino effect of, of some great coaches that came afterwards. But, you know, if Pokey hadn't gotten sick, there's a lot of people around that program that played for him or covered him or worked with him that, that say, you know, he would have been a 20 year figure at Boise state. Um, and, you know, things would be a lot different. They may have been just as good. They may have been, you know, who knows what he would have been as a coach. He was still fairly young at the time, but um, yeah, he really was the guy that got it turned around. And, and, you know, Gene, you know, Blameyer and his, his staff, they deserve a ton of credit for taking the chance on a guy like Pokey because he was eccentric and he was out there and he was very much the opposite of what Boise state had been at the time. Mm -hmm. And, and of course, after uh, Pokey Allen passed away due to cancer, the school brought in Houston Nutt, which you characterize as one of the more bizarre times in program history. Uh, what made Nutt such a strange fit for, for Boise State? Well, you know, Nutt was as, as Southern as it gets. Um, everything was, you know, golly this and yes, ma'am that. And he was, you know, he was from the Bible Belt and he was just very – you know, as, as outgoing and quirky as Pokey was, um, Houston was the same way in a sense, but it came with a real uh, uncomfortable feeling, I think, was, was a way that one of the players put it. You know, and the problem was, it, you know, if, if Houston had stuck around, I think he would have been a very popular figure there because he was a, you know, he was a good coach. Um, he was really one of the first coaches that we've seen that just, up, you know, packed up his bags literally in the middle of the night and left. And there was no communication with players. Um, there was very little communication with, with his bosses. Um, you know, he was on the job for 356 days. And the way that the Boise State players found out that he was leaving and going back home to Arkansas was they turned on the news and saw, and there was a video of him getting on a plane and leaving. I mean, he, he took no time to, to apologize or – talk about what it was. And, you know, I think if he had handled it differently, he could have even been salvaged. But, 
Um, you know, because he was going home to to his dream job. He's an Arkansas boy. His family was down there. I don't think anybody would have blamed him had he left it, uh, left on those terms. But it's just the way he did it. He handled it poorly. Um, you know, I did talk to him for the book, and he was, you know, he was a little upset at himself for the way he done it. He realized he could have done it differently. But you know, we, we've all seen what's happened to him since then where he's, you know, there's been issues at Arkansas. There was issues at uh, Ole Miss after he left there. And um, so, you know, I think Boise state really dodged a bullet in a sense. Um, I think he was the right hire at the time Um, coming from Murray state. uh, You know, he was a very hot coach uh, really, you know, he'd won the Eddie Robinson coach of the year award twice before that. So, you know, he was, he was the kind of coach that a school like Boise state does well to take chances on because it's boom or bust. Um, and I think he could have potentially been a real boom had he stuck there. Uh, unfortunately for him, he took off and his career never really went where, where he think he thought it would, but obviously Boise state, you know, bounced back well with, with the next hire. And, and it led to this, you know, this trio of coaches that came through there that were, you know, took the program to heights they never thought they could see. Mm-hmm. And yeah, what, what made uh, their next coach Dick Cutter such a good choice to get the program back on track after not strange one year tenure? Well, so the, the funny thing is about, about Dirk is he was an Idaho guy, went to Idaho State. Um, he had uh, really wanted the job after Skip Hall left in 1992. Um, when they hired Pokey, he wanted the job, didn't get it. Wanted the job in 1996 after after Coach Allen passed away and they ended up going with, with Nutt. And so it, it really – he didn't even have to interview for the job going into the 1998 season. Nutt – you know, left on the airplane, and the next day, uh, Blaymeyer called Dirk and said, "I've made enough mistakes, <laughs> passing on you twice. Let's do this." Uh, and and they accepted, and and he was there the next day. Uh, you know, Coach Cutter is—he's as Idaho, he's as Northwest as it gets. His father was a coach in that area, grew up in there, went to Boise State games growing up. Um, he understood what it took, you know, to to make it, and he had been at Oregon, and and was learning under coach, you know, Mike Bellotti and that staff and, and, and the guys he was working with. I mean, he was working with Chris Peterson and Mark Helfrich and Mike Bellotti and, and Ron Gold. And there was just a, this great group of guys that he had been working under. And, and Cutter was the, the, you know, he was as detail oriented as it got, you know, and you see, he's had a long career in the NFL now until he, you know, unfortunately was, was let go here a couple weeks ago. But, um, you know, he was, he, he was, he was so obvious of a choice that it was almost understandable why they didn't go with him twice. Because, you know, as I mentioned, you, you know, Boise, they need to be outside the box. Uh, Dirk wasn't necessarily outside the box at the time, but once they realized that he was the guy, uh, you know, he had, a, he had a wonderful three years there and they, they wrote a, rewrote a lot of record books um, and he set the tone and his tree, you know, his, his coaching tree led to what came up later. But, uh, you know, it, it, for Dirk, he's just the right guy at the right time, right temperament. He was steady, you know, after everything that that program went through. The, the, the last year and a half of Pokey Allen dealing with his illness and whether or not he was going to come back. And then, you know, when it became clear that, that you know, he wasn't going to survive this, the players having to deal with that. And then they get Houston Nutt, who was just this tornado of energy that comes through. It's everybody excited again. And then, bam, he's out the door. You know, Dirk was the the perfect thing because he was steady. He wasn't going to go anywhere. He wanted to be there. Um, you know, he he 
they offered him lots of money. He took it. They offered him lots of money after the first year and the second year, and he took it because they knew, you know, this is not a guy we're going to be able to keep forever, uh, but we need to be able to salvage as long as we can. And, and he gave them three wonderful years, and, and he's still beloved around that area uh, to this day. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, after uh, Cutter left, Dan Hawkins comes in, and he leads the team to its highest uh, success in, in uh, Division One A so far. How was he able to, to take the school higher than they'd been up to that point? So the, the, the fun part about Dan is Dan Hawkins is, is kind of a combination of he, – he was the um, kind of goofy – very philosophical, very smart. He had that that kind of a wild card factor in him. So he was a little bit like Pokey Allen in that sense. He was a little bit like Cutter uh, in that he was an offensive wizard. And by that point, though, a lot of that had to do with the fact that they were just bringing in players that were better than everyone else in their division. I mean, there was there was a stat in the 2003 season you know, a lot of times the, the the knock against Boise State was that they weren't playing anybody. You know, they weren't playing tough teams. Well, the the teams they were playing in their division, they won that year, those games, by an average of 39 points per game. And to me, that's a bigger statement of, you know, they, they weren't recruiting Pac-12 players playing against, you know, WAC, you know, their conference at the time, the West Athletic Conference. They weren't playing – Pac-12 caliber players against WAC players. I mean, they were playing the same level of guys. They were all recruiting the same type of players. Um, but his ability to spot talent, to develop talent, they had an incredible strength and conditioning staff at the time. I mean, all of that kind of came into fruition. The blue field by that point had become, a, you know, a, kind of a national treasure. And, you know, it started getting attention. They started playing games on Friday nights. They started playing games on Thursday nights. Wednesday nights, it didn't matter. Sunday, they played Sunday games. They would play, you know, um, Fresno State had the moniker of any time, you know, anybody, anywhere, anytime. But Boise State took that to the next level and because they knew if we can get on ESPN, if we can get on Fox Sports, if we can get on CBS, we need to do it because we're, we're, we have this opportunity right now to raise the, you know, the caliber of the program and raise the awareness of the program. And they had a guy like Hawkins that had, you know, had the ability to do that. And, and it was the perfect storm. You know, they had a couple crushing losses under him. Um, that The game they played at Georgia in 2005 was, you know, that was as lopsided a football game as you will ever see. And, and this, the final score of the game doesn't even come close to how bad it was. Um, but they took it and they ran with it. And, and there was, you know, he was just – Again, he was so anti-Boise in his personality and his, his beliefs and his, his, uh, his way of going about it, but it just worked. But he's also the kind of guy that, that can't be at a school real long because players will tire of it real fast. And a lot of guys, you know, when he left, said the same thing. They said, you know, Coach Hawk was great, but it was time for a change because you can only preach, you know, Eastern phil- uh, you know, philosophy and – and Buddhism and stuff so much to 18 to 20 year old, you know, 21 year old kids before it starts just falling on deaf ears. And, you know, around the time he left, they were, they were reaching that point, you know, his final year was, was probably his worst there at the program. Um, But, you know, his, his, sometimes his contributions get lost because of what happened after that. But, you know, the, the combination of Dirt Cutter and Dan Hawkins was, was as good a back to back as you could get for a program that was really looking to go to the next level. Mm-hmm. 
And, and you write a lot about how eccentric uh, Dan Hawkins was. It, was there any particular story or anecdote that really stood out to you as you learned about him? So there was a, there was a, and the, the, the players wouldn't talk about what game it was. Cause I think they knew I'd go and try to find the video. Um, but they they were, you know, they were on the field doing their warmups before a, a, a conference game. And he calls them all over and, and, you know, we're the, scoreboard reads three minutes to kick off and it's the kind of it's the time when you want to be getting fired up and getting everybody get the juices flowing and everybody takes a knee and, and he starts you know reading on about about a you know a, a buddhist prayer that he had read and and they all a few guys talked about it. they said you know it was so the opposite of what you think that it kind of worked and in the moment they're all like what is going on you know we need to be <laughs> we need to be going over last minute details on 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 prep and and you know, special teams is coming up and he sits down there and his whole thing was that, you know, if you're in the right frame of mind, all your preparation outside of football will be reflected on the football game. And, you know, he was, I mean, he was funny. There's a great clip of, of, I I mentioned the Georgia game in 2005, they went down to to Athens, you know, the first three plays of the game were turnovers and, and their quarterback, Jared Zabransky, who, who had a phenomenal bounce back the next year, but, he just – he was so overwhelmed, and and, and, they, and Hawkins pulled him from the game, you know, just before halftime, and, and he's walking off the field, and, and the ESPN reporter says, why did – you know, what, what did you take him off? And he kind of looked and laughed, and he goes, did you watch the first half? And then he just walked away. And that was, that was the epitome of who Hawkins was. I mean, he had no filter. He was not afraid to, to, to speak truthfully about players, about coaches, um, you know, there, there, there was, there were things about him that everybody loved. And that was one of them. There were things about him that, that a lot of players despised. Um, he, he was not afraid to, um, I don't want to say get players in trouble, but he, a lot of players didn't feel like he necessarily had their back. Um, and maybe he was a little bit more out for himself, uh, especially coming off of coach cutter, who was a complete players coach and, and would do anything to get his guys, you know, the right frame of mind and make sure that they were setting themselves up well for the future. Um, but, you know, Dan was a really, he was a very interesting character. Um, he really was. And, and uh, you know, you, you could do an entire book on just him and, and the way his life has gone and the way he's lived it. And, um, just very, just very unique at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, after Hawkins left to take the job at Colorado, Chris Peterson stepped in but he didn't originally want to take the, t- the, the head coaching job. What changed his mind and, and made him want to do that? Yeah. Peterson was very vocal uh, to his players and, and around the program that he, you know, he, his personality is so anti in front of the camera. I mean, that, that was not what he wanted to do. He was an X's and O's guys. A guy, and he, you know, he he wanted nothing to do with that, and and I think when when um, when the the 2005 season kind of you know, it didn't unravel, but it did not go the way that they expected. They had a lot of returning talent, um, ended up losing four games, and you know, I think I think Coach Peterson there saw what the guys were going through. Uh, when, when Hawkins left again, it, it wasn't a, a Houston nut situation where he just took off. Um, but there was a little bit of, well, he's, you know, he's choosing them over us. And, and, and I think Hawkins kind of made it clear that he thought Colorado was, was going up a step and, and that he was leaving the smaller program behind. 
Um, and, you know, a lot of the players on that staff and or on that team, and especially the offensive guys that got to work with Peterson, they also knew that there was something really special there with, with Coach Pete, and he was a very unique coach. Um, I don't think anybody probably could peg that he would be as successful as he has been. Um, but, you know, some guys just have that feel to him. And uh, the players on, on, on the roster were very vocal about him wanting to get it. And when he got it and he was at his, his press conference to, to be introduc- uh, introduced, he said, he goes, I, you know, I feel an obligation to these guys to not leave them and to not, to not abandon them and put them in the hands of yet someone else that maybe comes from outside the program. You know, it, again, it, go back to stability. They wanted stability, and it just so happens that the guy, the next guy in line for stability, Coach Pete, you know, will will go down as is arguably one of the best coaches that's ever come through college football. I mean, he truly is an incredible coach, and the fact that he was there for so long, I mean, you know, he, he's the way he left. Even though he left, he's still, you know, a, a hero around those parts because he was there for so long long after people thought he would be. I mean, he was getting job offers after his first season to go other places. Um, you know, he ended up being there for eight years and just, you know, he, he had the trust of the guys. Uh, he had the, he had the resume. He'd come from Oregon as well, part of that tree. And, and it was just, it was just the right, again, the next guy right up in line was just the right fit. I mean, that it was like a domino effect, the way these coaches lined up. Uh, one after the next, and they kind of all improved on each other, and that's you know that was really unique to, to find out. Mm-hmm. And and of course, Peterson did eventually leave to take the job at Washington. Uh, was there any ill will towards him from from the community there uh, after saying the, the pledging his loyalty to the to the community there? If there was, it was a very very small group of people. Like I said, you know, he, you know, they went to the Fiesta Bowl in the 2006 season. The, the real famous game that everybody really put them on the map. He was getting offers after that. He was, you know, and then he goes on the run with Kellen Moore for four years. They go 50 and three. I mean, he, he could have taken outside of probably three or four jobs in the country. He could have gone anywhere he wanted. Um, and he didn't. And he left and he, he stayed. And, you know, he left at the right time. I think everybody in a way now that there's, you know, it's been a few years removed. I think everybody can acknowledge yeah, it was probably time to move on. It was probably time to move on for Coach Pete. It was probably time to move on for Boise State. Because, um, you know, th- this isn't 40 years ago where a coach can be at a place for 30 years. You know, it's just it doesn't happen anymore. And, and sometimes voices get stale and, and guys need a new challenge. And, and I think Washington was the right spot for him. You know, he's, he was able to stay in the region. His family was was close there. And, you know, there was a lot of connections to, to Washington. So, that was probably the one job really that was going to be the one that would take him away. I mean, there was rumors that he would want to go to Oregon, you know, go to Oregon and, and that never worked out, but you know, we, I never was able to get a full true answer on that. I don't actually think he was ever, would ever have gone to Oregon. Um, but you know, it, it was, it was the right time. And, and, you know, it, like I said, if, if there were people that were upset, I mean, you know, you're going to be frustrated and sad that you lose a guy like that. But I think, after a couple of weeks, people were able to really step back and say, that, that, you know, we would not be where we're at today. The program would not be anywhere near where it's at if it weren't for him. I mean, the, the, the financial benefit for the university and the community as a whole was the impact that not only the Fiesta Bowl had, but then their run of success after was, was immeasurable. I mean, <laughs> that community is, they've been under a, a constant state of construction for five years now because everybody's, it's just growing. It's booming. And, and you know, you, you don't say that's 
fully because of the football program, but they had so much to do with that. And a large part of it was the, the, the eyeballs that were on there because of what coach Pete was able to do. Mm-hmm. And, and we've talked a lot about kind of the turnover uh, they've had at head coach. So, so how has the program been able to find stability even in the midst of all these coaching changes? Well, I said, you know, a lot of it is, is hiring from within. I mean, you know, from uh, Cutter and Hawkins and Peterson, those were all within hires. And then you go to Brian Harson, even though he was outside of the program when they hired him, you know, he played there in the late nineties. He was the offensive coordinator there under coach Peterson for a long time. So he's as Boise as it gets. I mean, in reality, he's probably the most Boise of the guys that they've ever hired. Um, and you know, it, it, it goes back to, again, a shrewd eye for talent, um, not out thinking things, going with the right hire, going with a guy that's not going to um, try to rewrite what they do. I mean, probably as, as far off the map as they have gone in terms of philosophy of how they want the program to be run was Hawkins. But again, that was the right time. It was the right fit and it worked. Um, you know, the program was known for their trickery and their explosive offense for so long because of what Hawkins and, and did, but that's not really who the program is at its heart. I mean, they are a, you know, they're, you know, they're high octane and they're high scoring, but they're a, they're a salt of the earth. I mean, they win in the trenches. Um, and, and, and so they've, you know, gone with guys like that. And at its heart, that's what Peterson is. That's what Brian Harson is who came in after. And, you know, it's just a lot, you know, again, a lot of it is luck. You cannot discount how, fortunate and how much it takes to have a coach come in and have the pieces fall into place. We, we've seen great coaches go places and it just bombs, you know, Nick Saban's tenure in the NFL was terrible. Well, I don't think anybody would call him anything other than probably the greatest coach of all time, you know, so it's right fit, right place, right time. Um, and they've been very lucky. And, and, you know, even coach Harson a couple of years ago had a little bit of a rough stretch where he lost two and three games. And again, for that area, that is, you know, that that's, whoa, let's, let's, you know, let's pump the brakes here. We can't be going down this road. And, you know, he's got it turned around and, and they're doing fine. But um, the high standard they keep is also these coaches know when they come in there and, and the, the administrative staff and the strength staff and the players they recruit, you know, they, they know when they step foot into town, the expectation is to win and they won't accept anything else. Mm-hmm. And we've also spent a lot of time, like I said, just talking about the coaches, but what players stood out to you as you researched and wrote this book, the great players who have helped the team attain the success on the field that they have? You know, probably the most um, underappreciated player, uh, just from a national perspective, is Bart Hendricks, who was the, the quarterback there and from 1996 through 2000. Um, you know, he, he was really the first player that Boise State's ever had that had national recognition. I mean, he was being talked about with, you know, Mike Vick and, and – um, Chris Winkie is the best quarterback in the country in the after the 2000 season and was a dark horse Heisman candidate and, and, you know, was a finalist for the Johnny Unitas award. I mean, and that, again, you have to go back to the time they had never been on ESPN. They had never been on national TV in general. And this guy was racking up every award you could think of. Um, and, and he just, you know, he, because of the success that came after him, um, you know, he gets very overlooked, but, you know, he, he was so vital um, to, to put in the key in the ignition and getting that thing going because, his, you know, him being in control of the offense under Cutter, uh, you know, 
success wise in the record books, they, they, you know, by I think his final year, they won 10 games. And to that point, it was the first time they'd been there really in a while and, and got it all turned around. And, you know, he set the tone for guys like Jared Zabransky and Kellen Moore that came through there. Um, you know, the, the real reason that they were able to have the success they did uh, in the late 2000s was the defensive linemen. I mean, that, they were – this was a team that rarely, rarely lost a play at the line of scrimmage. I mean, they've had so many guys going into the NFL – Guys like Shea McClellan and, um, you know, just so names pop. You know, but what's interesting, too, is you, you mentioned, you know, some, some of the guys that stand out in terms of importance. They've had a lot of guys go to the NFL, but they're also a team that was always built on the sum is greater than the individual parts. You know, they're, they're, they don't get five-star recruits. They, they're starting to get some four-star recruits, but for the most part, it was their ability to take the two- and three-star guys and build them into something more, and, um, you know, Guys like Doug Martin that, that come through there and go on and have, you know, successful NFL careers. I mean, no one wanted Doug Martin. He, he was just a guy that they found and knew, okay, we see something here. We see something here. We can turn him into this. And, you know, their ability to put guys in the NFL, does it, does it help as far as rebuilding, you know, keeping the brand up? Of course it does. You know, Leighton Vanderish right now is probably going to win NFL Rookie of the Year. And, you know, they talk ad nauseum about it on the broadcast, but he played eight-man football in Idaho. You know, it's just – so there are, there are guys there. There are people around the program, around the state of Idaho, that are perfectly capable of, of coming on and, and working their way into the NFL. And, and Boise State's had a, a, just a tremendous ability to spot those players and, and take them over and, and make them their own. Mm-hmm. And, and on a similar note, uh, apart from the 2007 Fiesta Bowl, are there any games that you see as particularly important in Boise State's history? You know, for me personally, I, I put the Fiesta Bowl as the second. Uh, okay, from, from, a, uh, from a beneficial standpoint, from a financial standpoint, from a recognition standpoint, the Fiesta Bowl stands out above all else. And that will never, probably never be talked because it was just – this incredible moment of the entire country's watching. No one had really seen them at that point. Most people were assuming they would lose by 30 to 40 points and they come out and beat them. And they, to me, the game that really solidified who Boise state was, was uh, the beginning of the 2010 season. They go to Landover, Maryland. They're playing Virginia tech uh, at RFK stadium. And it's, you know, it's, it's labeled as a neutral site game, but they are literally 80 miles from the Virginia tech campus or whatever it was hundred miles you know, that place was 95% Virginia Tech fans. It was Monday. It was Labor Day. It was the, they were the only game on TV that night. Um, and this was the year they had been building towards. I mean, I mean, Kellen was a junior. They had a, a loaded roster of guys. I think six guys from that, from that roster ended up going to the NFL. And on a, you know, national stage, they just flat out beat Virginia Tech. They were right there in the line of scrimmage. They never got beat up physically. It was a thrilling game. Right, came right down to the end. Uh, you know, Kellen hit uh, hit his receiver with a minute and a half to go to, to put him up. And to me, that game was the most important for the program because it showed people we are no longer a school that's known for trick plays. We're no longer a school that should be just talked about because of our field turf. We are no longer a school that should be talked about just because of who our coaches. Like they are a legitimate program. Um, and then the next year they go in to beat Georgia down, down in Atlanta and it just snowballed from there. But you know, that Virginia tech game just get, it gets lost in the shuffle, but that one was so vital 
and so important to, to put a stamp on who they are and what they've been building towards. And, and I, I wish that game get, got talked about more because it was truly, it was really one of the best games of the year. Well, you know, one of the best games we've seen in the last 10 years. It was just a, a thrilling night. And speaking of that infamous blue turf, uh, how did the school come up with that idea and then decide to implement it? So this is a great story. So Gene Blameyer is the, is the AD. It's 19, it's the, it's after the 1985 season and he's flying to Colorado to, to do some meetings and stuff. And, and they knew that they had to redo the turf. The, the turf they had was just, it was worn down. It was past its prime. And so he, he's sitting there and on the plane and, you know, this is before he had computers and stuff. So he's got a lot of time to think. And he says, you know, we're going to have to spend $750,000 roughly to, to fix the turf. And we're going to put down a, bland green turf that everybody else in the country has why not take a chance you know this was his fifth he was heading into his fifth year on the job you know they were they were they transitioned from from coach Setensich to skip hall and and you know like i said they were in the midst of this four five six win stretch where they just couldn't quite break out and i think that to me is the most impressive part of this because when they when he when he decided to go with the blue turf you know that could have backfired so easily. They could have, they could have been the, the lapping stock of college football because they weren't winning. You know, it's one thing to make a bold move like that when you're winning 11 games a year and you feel like you have a little bit of clout. They had none of that at the time. Um, and it, it turned out to be probably the most shrewd, ingenious marketing campaign we've ever seen because that's really what it was. It was a marketing campaign to say, look at us over here in tiny little Boise, Idaho. Um, put your eyeballs on us and see what we're all about. Um, you know, the first few years were definitely iffy because they, they didn't really didn't start winning for a good decade after that. Um, but you know, it was, it was different. Obviously no one had the time had done it. Now you, you see different colored turfs popping up here and there, but you know, it was, it was as revolutionary a move as you could have. And he just said, I'm going to, I'm going to go with my gut on this one. And it, and it worked out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and looking into the future, what do you believe it'll take for Boise State to be able to maintain success moving forward? You know, it's, a, it's an interesting question. It's one I've been pondering a lot lately because I, as I transition out of this project to move to another one, I, I you know, really have, have discovered a fondness for the program and made lots of friends and want to see them continue to do well. Um, you know, it's hard to say because so much of what they were able to do, like I said, was just a product of right place at the right time. Um, do I think coach Harson is, is a guy that can get them there? I do because I think that, that what allowed them to become successful, he has those characteristics. Um, I actually thought this past season was really an opportunity to do something because they, they had a, a high ranking to start the year. They had a big time game against Oklahoma state. And unfortunately, the year didn't work out the way they wanted to. But, um, you know, it's going to be one of those years. It, it's, you know, for them, they're, they're always going to have a junior and senior-laden team, aside from maybe a, a position here or there. Uh, but, you know, they don't recruit guys. They don't, they don't have five, six guys going early to the NFL every year. So it's going to take one of those years where maybe they've had a couple of successful seasons and they're heading into a year where they have a lot of seniors and the schedule works out. I think with the current, I, you know, a lot of people with the current playoff format think that it's actually a determinant to Boise State. I think it's beneficial because 
of the simple fact that you have four teams now and you have an opportunity. And there's going to be a year where every other conference has a team with a loss. And if Boise State could start out the year in the top 15-ish, somewhere in there, have a big out-of-conference win, and then really take the rest of their conference to task, they can get there. Um, and I, I think as far as long-term success, you know, they just have to keep doing what they're doing. And, and they have to ride out the rocky times because um, it's college football. It's cyclical. You're going to have them again. Um, but it is, assuming they don't stray too far from the things that they've done over the last 70 years, they're, they're really fine. They're in a unique spot. I would love to see them not move up to the Pac-12 or the Big 12 or somewhere in that area. I think that they're great where they're at. I think the Mountain West – and conferences like that have established enough of an identity that you're no longer an afterthought. You know, we've seen it with UCF the last couple of years. If you win and you win big enough and you win long enough, you will be in the conversation. So Boise State doesn't have to try to do something they're not. They don't have to go anywhere else. Stay there, become the class of the Mountain West, and, you know, just wait for that time to pounce and, and, and do it right. And I, and I, I think based on the, you know, the brain trust they have there and the way they've done it in the past, I, I don't have any doubt that, that we will see them again at some point be the talk of the country because of what they could be doing. Mm-hmm. And what lessons do you think other smaller schools could take from Boise State's success? Not – well, again, I, I think I just said it, but, you know, not out – don't outthink the room. You know, everything is built – you know, everybody in the country runs some form of RPO offense or, or the Chip Kelly effect has taken hold. Everybody's doing the same thing now. If that's not what you're based on, if that's, you know, geographically, if it, if it works better for you to run more of a ground and pound offense and you're the only team in your conference to do that, do it. You know, hire the right coaches. Invest money into your strength staff. I mean, they, you know, the, the strength and conditioning staff always say that for 30 years has just been – incredible and they they build guys up from the from the ground out and I know I've said it eight times today and I apologize but you know their ability to control the line of scrimmage is something that as long as you can do that you're never going to go away you're never going to be out of the conversation um you know speed speed guys and speed offenses they come and go but if you can win you know if you can run the ball you can stop the run you're going to be successful so you know I think if you're if you're at a school maybe trying to strive to be the Boise State look at what everybody else is not doing and try to go there. Assuming it stays within your boundaries of what's realistic for you and be patient, you know, don't, don't give a coach two years and then, and then yank him out if he's not working, give guys time. You know, that's, that's the thing. Even in the eighties when they weren't working, these guys had five years each to, 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 you know, perform and and really get, okay, it's been five years. It's not working. Now we're going to make a change, but it wasn't one or two years. And the, you know, it was yanked out before they even had a chance to, to really establish your identity. And, and, you know, it's, it's, and again, a lot of it is, is how much do you have invested? How much do your boosters invest? I mean, there are some schools that are just at a disadvantage and they don't have the backing to do it. Fortunately, Boise State has had the backing and that, you know, you can't, you can't uh, underestimate how much that, that helps because it, but that also comes from winning. You know, if you're winning, your alumni is going to be more likely to invest money in you because they want to see you continue. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. You know, it, it, it goes both ways. But, you know, it, it all goes back to just being true to who you are and, and, and it's worked for them. Mm-hmm. And, and what do you think the legacy of the Boise State Broncos' success is for college football at large? You know, I think they're – you know, it's funny because it, it, 
Utah was was really obviously technically the first team to crash the BCS party, and and they went in two thousand four. Uh, you know, they 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 played Pitt, and at the time Pitt was in the Big East, and it they just didn't carry very much cachet. So I think a lot of people actually think of Boise State in their their impact in the Fiesta Bowl as, as the first game that the the underdog really got a chance. And you know, you have to give it to Utah; they were the first team. But you know, I I think. Overall, they're going to be looked at as as the almost more of a nuisance because they were the team that the other teams couldn't shake. You didn't want to play them. When you played them, you end up losing, and and you know their their impact cannot be you know brushed over. Um, the Fiesta Bowl is is probably one of the top five games ever. Um, truly, from from start mm-hmm. to finish, it was an incredible game. The 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 impact it had. Uh, the proposal and the kiss afterwards. I mean, it was, you know, I wrote in the book that it was, it was so Boise state that it was almost too much Boise state, you know, the way it worked out with, with Ian Johnston. And it was, you almost, you know, they walked up to the line of being like, Oh, that's too much. Uh, but it was just perfect at the time. And it, and it, it's, you know, that moment will, will always be there. And, and when they show the, you know, we're heading into the 150th year of college football. And so I know ESPN is going to do a whole year of college football history. And, you know, that, that game or that moment is going to be in highlight clips for the rest of time, because it was just, you know, you see a picture of Boise state and Oklahoma on the same field. You go back to that moment, you know, where you were, you know, exactly what game that was. No one has to question it. You don't have to think about what year it was. I mean, it's just one of those things that's there. Um, and if they never get to a national championship and they, you know, they, they hit a ceiling that they can't go above, well, they got to that moment and that was, it was a pretty special night. And it's one that, you know, they, they really couldn't script and they couldn't have gone better for them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I know I always remember watching that game as a 16 year old, just entranced by just every, every ebb and flow of that game. Yeah, it was, it was, it was one of those games where it was, it was truly a moment in this country where even if you weren't fans of either team, you were watching and you were calling people saying, are you seeing what's going on right now? Mm-hmm. Like turn the channel on. This is incredible. And you know, before Boise became the team that maybe people rooted against, cause oh, I'm tired of them. They, they, you know, unless you were in Norman, Oklahoma, or you were an alumni of that school, I, I think you were, everybody was pretty much pulling for them at that time because it was just something we had not really seen before. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and to wrap up, I'd like to, to just ask a few questions I'd like to ask every guest. Um, to begin, what, what are you currently reading at the moment? Currently reading? Um, oh boy, I got, see, I'm one of those guys, unfortunately, I have like five books that I'm like, I have one in the bedroom, I have one in the kitchen, one in the car, one at work. Um, I'm actually, well, I'm actually reading a lot of some books on my next project, which I can't talk about yet because I don't want someone to swoop in and steal it. Um, I'm actually going back and also rereading um, when pride still mattered uh, the, the Lombardi mm-hmm. story, because I, I really have found that um, nonfiction biographical work is what I like to do. Um, and that is probably the gold standard of what it is. So I'm not as much reading it per se as I am taking notes throughout the entire book on, you know, this is how you structure this. This is how you talk to this person. Um, you know, it's funny. I've never really been a huge fiction person as well um but our our my oldest daughter has really expressed an interest in wanting to read harry potter so i think we're gonna sit down and read harry potter i've never read it before so i'm gonna sit down and read that with her and um, you know i just a few things that are out there that 
I'm just looking around my office right now and seeing what's what what the next one is to read. Um, but yeah, probably yeah. I, I try to really stick with the biographies. I'm a Jeff Perlman's been a huge influence on on me, and and uh, I was able to write a, a blog post for him a couple years ago chronicling the uh, Johnny Menzel NFL draft. Um, and so it, you know any, everything Jeff's ever written is on my bookshelf and has been read through a few times and. And he's been a huge help and influence. And so anything that anything he does, I just finished fo- football for a buck a couple weeks ago. And um, so that was, that's one I'll probably flip through again here in the next couple months. Cause it's just so good. Mm-hmm. Um, you can always count on that to, to be in my repertoire. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm definitely with you on when pride still mattered being a bit of a gold standard. I'm, I'm, I, I don't understand how he pulled it off sometimes. It's almost frustrating. Cause you're like, well, in the position I'm in in my life, I cannot embed myself in my next subject like that. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, you know, it, it is truly the gold standard of this is what it is like to find in the soul of what somebody is and, and who they are and, and what their world is like. I mean, it's, it's just, there, there's, zero doubt as to why it is as regarded as it is mm-hmm. i know i went into it not think not caring much one way or the other about vince lombardi i just read it because of the acclaim it had and by the end i'm like oh my gosh i care very deeply about this person <laughs> yeah it, yeah you you true and, and i think you know that's with my next project it is about an individual and i think that that is something that i'm keeping in mind it's like okay how what at the end of the day, when the person ends the book, you want them to have a true feeling about that person one way or the other, whether it was they're ultimately someone that should be loved or ultimately someone that should be despised. I mean, your job is to take them inside that and, and show who they were at the ground level as a person. And, and, you know, David did such an incredible job at that. And so it's, it's, it's definitely one that I feel like should be taught to every or every single aspiring author, every single journalist, it should be required reading and it should be a book that is just filled with yellow and pink and green marker as you're writing down notes and, and putting things down to remember later. I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's a, it's almost a work of, it's almost like a lecture book in a way of how to do things. Uh, well, you may have just answered this, but um, if you could recommend any book to everyone listening today, uh, what would it be? Oh, well, let's see here. You know, it's funny. I just talked about how I'm not a huge fiction fan. Um, if you want to read a book that, that confounds you, that makes you think, that makes you have to reread over and over again because you just don't quite understand it and you want to go back and, and read it again and, and really makes you better as a writer, um, they're, they're, it's Lincoln and the Bardo by George Saunders. It is, it is probably the most, one of the most unique um pieces of prose i have ever read um you if you want to be a writer you have got to read on writing by stephen king whether again whether you're fiction or nonfiction. um his advice and his story i listened to that book six times i i have it on audiobook and i listen to it in the car all the time he offers some just the most incredibly obvious but poignant pieces of advice and you're like i cannot believe i hadn't thought about that um the book less um, by Andrew Greer. Uh, it came out last year. Again, I hear I'm naming all these fiction books. I'm like, I don't really read fiction. And then I'm looking through here and reading <laughs> all these fiction books. Uh, read less. It's an incredible book. Um, I know that it, it, it's not technically a book book, but I know Wright Thompson has one coming out next year. It's a collection of his work. 
Um, if you're not reading Wright Thompson and you want to be a writer, then you're, you're missing out. Um, he's, he's probably the, the best magazine writer in the country today. Um, it's sports, obviously it's sports topical, but he, he is the next guy that really delves into the, the spirit of who people are. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that one as well. And, um, so yeah, there, there's so many to name that you, you caught me off guard trying to think around. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what, what is your earliest sports memory? Oh, it would be, um, I'm sitting in my bedroom and I would have been probably five or six years old and I had moved this tiny little TV and I had this really high um, nightstand or dresser and I had this little TV on there and this, yeah, I think it was been like 1991. Uh, so I grew up, I grew up in, in Mount Angel, Oregon. It's a, it's a small town about an hour south of Portland and have been a diehard Portland Trailblazers fan since, since I could move. Um, and I just remember watching this game. They're playing at Chicago. This is the, this is right as Jordan is, is exploding and becoming the guy that we all know he is. And I just, I don't remember the score. I don't remember necessarily any details about the game. Uh, but I remember sitting on the edge of my bed watching them and Portland went in there and beat Chicago. And it was just the moment where I realized like the power that sports can have on you. Um, it's not the X's and O's. It's, it's the highs you get and the lows you get. Um, unfortunately, being a Trailblazers fan and an Oregon Duck fan, I've had more <laughs> lows than highs. <laughs> um, still waiting for that ultimate high for one of them to win a championship. But, it, you know, the feeling you get when your team has a, has a big win, it's, it's really nothing like it. My, my wife will joke with me because um, I was watching a game, you know, Oregon game this year earlier, and, and you know, they, they did something, and I kind of jumped up, and she goes, well, you weren't this excited when our kids were born. And I said, well, you know, I was. You just don't show it in the same way. I mean, there's this just jubilation that you get when something that you have absolutely no control over happens to your team, a team that you have no control over, you know, it's kind of, it, it's kind of funny when you think about it, but um, it all goes back to that day sitting on my, on my bed, watching the Blazers beat the Bulls. And I, again, I, I need to go back and find it and find the, the box score and the stats, but mm-hmm. just that was the first time I felt that tingle run over your whole body. We're like, this is, this is something different that I hadn't experienced before. It's so unique. Mm-hmm. And, and what's the first thing that you remember writing? I was, well, the first thing I remember writing, uh, I wrote a letter to Paul Westfall because he did not include, he did not include Clyde Drexler onto the all-star team or no, I'm sorry. Drexler was on the all-star team, but didn't play maybe the game or didn't play very much in the game. Anyways, I I just wrote this one page letter, all capital, you know, I I'm sure it's still summer at my parents' house, but I think I called him like like a banana nose and it just, you know, I mean, I was six or seven. And um, so that's technically the first thing I remember, but the first time I really realized that this is something I was passionate about. There's a, a, a I wrote an op-ed, the, the Oregonian, um, the, the state paper here uh, was, was having opportunities for people to write in an op-ed and if it was good enough, they got in. And I wrote it actually about Matt Leinert um, right after he announced his after his junior year he was going to come back for his senior year um something about that usc team i really enjoyed the colors and, and liner and bush and carol and there was something very magical about that time and i just i really liked matt liner 
um, college football has always been my, my real passion is from, from a, a league standpoint. So I thought it was great for the sport that he came back. And I wrote a piece called, um, you know, like the bug bite keeps Leonard on campus. And it was just, you know, the, the, the bug of college football and the pull of it kept him there. And, and that actually ran in the Oregonian. And I was just, you know, still uh, laminated and, and I can see it to this day. And, and that was the moment where I thought, okay, this is something that that feeling I got when I saw that on there in my first byline. And, you know, as writers know, there's so many ebbs and flows and I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't know if I still consider myself a writer yet. I, I you know, I don't write for a living. I, I, that's the goal. I don't write books for a living. I, that's the goal. <laughs> you know, I still have a nine to five like most people, but you just plug through every day. And I, I go back a lot. I, I, I go back to that memory of that liner article and seeing it there. And it's like, you know, that, that's what it's about. So, you know, keep plugging away. And, and if you work at it hard enough and long enough, you will get there. And, and uh, so that, you know, that I always go back to that one. I, I put the Paul Westfall one on the back burner. That's not my first one in my head because that's, <laughs> that's not uh, what I want to be remembered for. So. <laughs> and, and if you could give your younger writing self any piece of advice, what would it be? Uh, don't stop. Um, I had, you know, I'd have three or four years where I went right and I'd try to focus on something else and I'd go to, you know, maybe I want to do this for a living. And it's just, it never, writing was only the one thing that never, um, it never went away. Um, it was always there. I, I think I, well, so I, I, so I really struggled in college. It took me, I didn't graduate college until I was 28. Um, cause I would stop and then I'd go back and then I'd stop and I'd go back. And, and, uh, definitely I would have, you know, I got into U of O, was going to go be a journalism student. Um, if I could go back to the 17 year old me, I would say, this is the route you're going to take to get there. And it ultimately is going to work out. Um, but if you really focus while you're in school and take the internships, take the, the, you know, write every day, write for free as much as you can. Don't be afraid to send it to anybody and everybody because eventually, um, the business of networking is so much more vital than the business of anything else. Uh, you know, I, I, I was able to land my publishing deal because of something, someone I had met when I was working in radio eight years ago. And, you know, he had a book coming out and he introduced me to his editor and they bought it. And, you know, it's these connections you make. And I know I'm rambling here, so I, I but it's, you know, it's, again, it's all about putting in the work and, if you're a college student and you want to be a writer, intern, intern, intern. I know it's doesn't seem fair. And in 2019, we should not be working for free. But guess what? That's where you learn stuff and that's where you make connections. And if you go in there and you're working for free and you bust your butt and the guys that are above you see that, they're going to take care of you. And maybe not everybody will, but you're going to meet someone who will take care of you. And you never burn bridges because you don't know down the road when that person that you haven't talked to for five years, you're going to bump into him. He's going to say, hey, I've got something for you. Or you say, hey, you're doing this. Would you mind looking at something I've done? And it can take you to magical places. Um, so the, the, the two main pieces, network, don't burn bridges. Thank you for listening to the Pros and Pros podcast. Stay tuned for many more exciting guests in the near future. And in the interim, Please subscribe and leave a positive review if you've enjoyed the show. You can also follow us on both Twitter and Instagram at Pros and Pros. I'm Michael Wimmer. Happy reading, everyone. <laughs>